Hello and welcome to the Apache Cassandra Corner, a community-driven podcast for all things Apache Cassandra. The Apache Cassandra Corner is sponsored by Datastax. I am your host, Aaron Pletz. Well, hello everyone. Um, today I am joined by Ryan Wright of That Dot, um, and he's here to talk about um, their streaming graph database known as Quine IO. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, could you maybe start by uh, telling us a little about yourself? Yeah. So for me personally, I am a, historically a developer. So I've been building software for somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years or so. Um, intermixed within that have gone through the process of starting a few different companies um, and leading engineering and development teams along the way. So data platform and data science has kind of always been my cup of tea. Um, and it's really okay. you know, the, the questions about what, is, what does data mean are, are always really fascinating to me. So I've kind of carried that through my career. Uh, and most lately that has led to a new open source project that we call Quine um, that is uh, the world's first streaming graph. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so how did the, um, the Quine project come about? Uh, let's see, about seven plus years ago now, uh, seven and a half years ago, somewhere in there. Um, I had been, as I mentioned, like working on a lot of different engineering teams and uh, in the data platform and data science space, solving a lot of the same problems over and over again. So problems around data pipelines. So uh, just about every company has some form of data stream coming into their system. And the challenge is always, how do you handle that fast enough and process the data quickly and consistently and with all the typical challenges of data pipelines and data processing, how do you do that for whatever the business is uh, in the middle of doing? Mm -hmm. So when you do that once, it's really uh, challenging and interesting. It's kind of a turn the database inside out kind of a problem where uh, you kind of have to implement a lot of these fundamental issues spread out over your stream now. Um, but then when you do it again and again and again, you start seeing that you're doing the same thing over and over again. And like any good software engineer, I have to ask this question about, can we solve the meta level problem? Right. You know, right. The, the thing that's driving all the, you know, the, the bigger issue. Um, so I started, uh, I started what became the Quine project uh, just as kind of a personal experimentation into a different way to approach this, uh, some of these classic problems. And it was built around this idea that a graph is this really expressive way to represent data. Mm -hmm. um, and classically, they've always known, to, like graph databases have been known to be really slow and kind of, you know, you can't right. really use right. it in, I mean, in yeah, production. Yeah, you can do some cool things with them, but yeah, absolutely. They're, they're not what you'd call, yeah, high performing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it and it just never sat right with me that it had to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so I had a few ideas for what we might try, uh, just related to some stuff I'd been working on for a long time, um, and uh, started putting together a project to experiment with these ideas. And some of this is, is tied up in uh, this area of interest for, that I have as well, just kind of in the the realm of philosophy, um, especially analytic philosophy. Um, and questions about like philosophy of science and philosophy of language. Mm -hmm. And to me, it felt like a similar problem to say, here's this flow of data coming into a system. 
Um, and the question is, what does that data mean? That's what we really want to solve as it streams through. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that felt a lot like this philosophical question about, uh, like, how do words convey meaning? You know, what does that process look like? And so found some inspiration through the history of philosophy, especially in the work of a, a philosopher named Willard Van Orman Quine. Okay, wow. Um, so he had, he had done a lot of formal logic and a lot of uh, reasoning in that space about philosophy of language and philosophy of science and understanding uh, what how words convey meaning. And that felt like a very similar problem and proved to be inspirational for a lot of the technical implementations along the way as well. So that experiment turned into uh, a viable um, uh, a viable technology, which then became a, a really important component for a DARPA program that I was leading called Transparent Computing. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was aimed at a cybersecurity problem of how do you detect advanced persistent threats? Um, and ideally, you do that in real time automatically. And the premise was you watch a huge amount of data and you put it all together uh, and you analyze it on the fly as it streams through. And so our challenge kind of began with the fact that uh, we couldn't use any existing system for that. Sure, sure. So we had to we had to do something new, and it was perfect opportunity to take this this project that I had uh, begun and kind of proven out up until that point, and deploy it to solve this uh, really critical problem in cybersecurity. Wow, wow, and and that's that's good that you call that out. Where um, you know you know where you have to be able to to detect things like um you know like network intrusions in real time, mm -hmm. you know because if if you took this big pile of data and analyzed it later and said oh hey, we had somebody enter a system eight days ago. I mean, that doesn't really, you know, <laughs> help right. a whole lot after after the fact. So right. it's like, well, that's a nice fact to have known. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eight days ago. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's really the challenge is that um, in the world of cybersecurity, real-time detection is just dramatically more valuable than, you know, kind of, past time detection. Absolutely. Um, yeah. it's, it's good to know that something did happen. It's far better to know that something is in the process of happening. And especially at a moment when you can stop it, mm -hmm. you, can, you can keep the breach from happening. You can keep the crown jewels from being stolen, kind of whatever, whatever the case is. Right. So right. You can actually do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Cybersecurity yeah, I, has, this, has this interesting dynamic where, you know, the, the defender needs to be perfect all the time and, and work immediately. But the attacker, especially for this style of problem, uh, the attacker has an advantage when they are going slow. The slower they go, the more of an advantage they have because uh, they, when they're lying low and slow, so to speak, uh, any traces of what they're doing uh, show up in very small quantities and are spread out over time. Okay. And when they're spread out over time, it means they're buried in so much more data about what else is happening in the systems that it just becomes this monumental data challenge for how to consume that and interpret it and combine immediate real-time new information with something that happened weeks or months or even years ago. Right, right. So that was our that was our research challenge for which Quine was uh, an ideal application for. Wow! Um, and so yeah, it was a it was a a fun time and a fun project to apply it, and it helped us prove out Quine and kind of you know carry it forward and bring it to uh, to the point where we can make it into a product and release it open source uh, at Quine.io. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. 
So Quine can actually run on a couple of different data stores. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, uh, just kind of a reference to Quine uh, as a streaming graph database. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, that's a term we kind of tread lightly on because we don't really quite think of it as a database. You know, um, and I, I kind of is, figured that as, as you started talking along, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe it's not a database, right? No. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of, it's in a new space. It's squarely in between the world of databases on one side and stream processing on the other side. Sure. And, and so it's in, in some ways it's familiar and depending on from which direction you look at it, it kind of looks like either or both. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, it, but it's really this new space in between. And the way Quine works when it's running is it maintains a graph and does a lot of processing in memory, mm -hmm. um, but it saves its data on disk in a persistent fashion using other existing storage technologies. Right, right. And so, you know, you can, you can save data locally using RocksDB, but for most of the time for production use cases, um, it's run in a clustered environment and you want some uh, resilience in your data and, and, you know, high availability for it. So it's usually backed by Cassandra. Right, right. Okay, now you just, you hit on, on some of the advantages there, but, you know, that, that was my, my next question leading into was, uh, what would you say are, are some of the advantages of um, running Quine on top of Cassandra? Um, and maybe other than just, you know, like high availability and, you know, all that, all that good stuff too, but. Yeah, performance is a big one for us. Um, and, Absolutely. and, you know, when choosing a data store, your, your usage pattern really matters. Um, right. And the way, the way Quine works under the hood is it, uh, it saves deltas. So it saves updates to uh, this, the changes to state of nodes in the graph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so whenever there are changes, those uh, get written out to Cassandra. Um, and that, uh, that, kind of write intensive application, uh, you know, has comes in, you know, in just fairly high volume, but then works really well when distributed across a Cassandra cluster. Right. Um, and, and then we can read it out, you know, as needed kind of in batches to replay certain events or to pull back history for certain corners of the graph. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Have you done any multi data center deployments yet? Um, we haven't done any multi-data center deployments. Okay. Yet. Okay. All right. No, I, I just did see in the, uh, in the config file that, uh, you know, you had a, uh, a way to like specify, you know, like the, you know, what's known as the local data center Cassandra wise and, and be able to, to specify things like, you know, your consistency levels and, and everything there. Um, yeah, we keep being surprised by lots of different use cases that our users are, are telling us about though. Um, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody out there has, has already gotten further ahead than us on that. <laughs> hey, and, you know, I just got to say too, um, you know, your, your team has been very helpful. You know, I've asked a couple of questions on your, uh, on your Slack. Um, one, one in particular that I, I just got working this afternoon. I, I was, I was on it for a little bit, but, you know, with a vacation and some other things going on it, you know, it, it was, it was almost two weeks till I got back to it, but, um, I actually did get it to work with, um, with you know Cassandra's um, like role-based security model, you know where you know you can specify you know like a uh, like a username and a password and the plain text auth provider, and it'll it'll actually like authenticate and uh, you know hook you up then. Um, and I, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. I'm one of, you know the uh, the team member of yours that responded said, "Well, I haven't tried this, but try this. I think this should work." And and he was right. It, it totally worked. <laughs> yeah. So so that was that was great. That was great. It, it's been a funny place for us to uh, to be working on this project because 
Um, you know, it's a brand new open source project, but at the same time, it's been under development for seven and a half years now. So there's a lot of depth behind it. Um, you know, there's a lot of engineering that has gone into, uh, you know, a lot of generalization and, and you know, all, all sorts of different corners that make it a much more mature product than a typical, you know, brand new, freshly minted uh, project. Um, so, so it's it's been this interesting, uh, this interesting combination of lots of, lots of development and lots of features along the way, which then some, some sometimes surprise us in the different cross product of their capabilities when you start using it together with different features. Um, that space gets pretty big, but it's been covered pretty well too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm actually going to deviate from our question list for just a second. Um, one thing that you know when I when I'm reading up on Quine and you know when I'm kind of running it locally. I'm, I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time wrapping my head around a standing query. Um, could you, you know, obviously without opening this, the, a gigantic can of worms, but could, could you just, you know, kind of, um, you know, 20,000 foot level, what is a standing query and how does it help your, uh, your data stream into the graph? Yeah, sure. Maybe I can even explain that in the context of one, one step zoomed out a little bit further. Okay. So as a, as a streaming graph, Quine is, uh, is storing data, but it's also processing it live on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's really two parts of using Quine. The first step is how are you going to bring data in, um, usually by plugging it into a stream of data like Kafka or Kinesis, something right. like that. How are you going to bring data in and form it into a graph? Um, a graph, because it's such an expressive data structure. Um, you know, it's so useful for describing data in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but, but step one is take that stream and events out of that stream and build them into a graph. So that internal graph is what Quine works on. And that's Quine's internal main focus. But the second step of that is Quine will monitor that graph for any patterns that you like. Mm -hmm. So it'll watch for any shapes in the data. It'll uh, watch for certain values, you know, uh, matching certain criteria or passing thresholds. So if you want to stream data in and build a graph structure and maybe on, on some of the nodes in that graph, you want to start aggregating values or, you know, counting how often various things occur or, uh, you know, measuring complex structures in the graph and, uh, you know, putting those pieces together like that. Um, any of those kind of conditions that you start looking for in the data, um, you simply just express that as a standing query, which means you write a database query mm -hmm. uh, in, in this case, in the cipher language. So graph query language. Oh yeah, you just, yeah. You just write a database query in the cipher language and say, here's what I want to find. Uh, let me issue that query as a standing query, which means it gets dropped into the graph and it stays in the graph it automatically pushes itself through the graph, uh, matching part, part of the pattern at a time and moving through the graph in a very efficient way. Okay. That's kind of Quine's main new innovation. Sure. But the, the takeaway there is that every single time there's a new pattern matched in that graph, results stream out immediately and you can direct them wherever you want. So you can take results for, for your standing query and say, post it to Slack or save it to a file or mm -hmm. push it into that Kafka topic over there um, or just log it to the console. Um, there's, there's a lot of different options for what you can do with them. But the takeaway is really just uh, what pattern in the graph do we wanna watch for and then stream out those results immediately as soon as they're ready. Meanwhile, the graph under the hood is changing and updating itself because new data continues to stream in. Sure, 
Sure. So really that that standing query, um, it, it almost sounds like a like a traversal that's running all the time that um, that your your new data will help that yeah, that will reflect your new data and be able to like, you know, kind of control the output of of that data as it as it streams in. Yeah, exactly. I did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. That that really is super cool. That's that's for sure. And it's uh, Quine has a different uh, different approach to how to how to do that and how to execute it. You know, it maintains this graph model in memory, which mm -hmm. gives us exactly the right moment for when to do the next small little incremental step in resolving those query patterns. And so it becomes almost free. You know, just it's very efficient to do small little checks um, for the next the next iterative step in your pattern in the graph. Um, and because it's in memory and at just the right moment, it can be very efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the results of that can, you know, as we said earlier, stream out, or you can even call back into the graph and update the graph, uh, causing a change somewhere else to propagate tags through the graph or, okay. Okay. Um, you know, increment other values and keep track of what's going on. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, so maybe maybe we can spend uh, the next few minutes here, um, maybe talking about uh, you know I I know Cassandra has this uh, this bit of a reputation as as being not terribly easy to work with. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've caught on to that or not yet, but uh, it's it's something we're trying to change. <laughs> but um, you know I I I did want to ask about you know were there were there any like Cassandra specific obstacles in the, the implementation that you ran into, and you know just maybe a little about a little about how you solved them. Yeah, when you first stand up a Quine cluster uh, that's backed by Cassandra, mm -hmm. um, if it's running on several different machines, the goal is to have those machines connect to the Cassandra instances, set themselves up and run and make that process really easy and transparent. Right. Um, one, one of the details that we have to manage in that process is uh, we want the different Quine components to all act independently um, and connect to that storage layer backed by Cassandra all independently. Mm -hmm. um, but in that process, there has to be certain key spaces set up in Cassandra so that Quine knows where to go write the data and how to use that. Um, and so that it, it kind of creates a situation where all the different Quine instances uh, race to go create that key space. And then if, it, if it's already existing, then we throw an error and, you know, just gets a little untidy in that respect. Right. Um, and, and so this is probably more of a distributed system sort of thing than specific to Cassandra, but really just when there's, when you're trying to do one operation among many machines, there has to be some sort of coordination for who's going to do it. Um, and so that was just one case where it showed up for us when starting up a, uh, uh, starting up a new Quine instance um, to set up Cassandra so that it's ready to handle all the Quine data coming in. Um, uh, that's a little bit of a challenge. Okay. It's pretty easily solved by just doing it by hand, you know, ahead of time. So you set up your Cassandra cluster, create key spaces, and you're done. Right, right. Um, or you can stagger the uh, the the setup and configuration of Quine instances. Okay, okay, yeah. You know, one of the things to to remember about Cassandra's schema is that in in terms of you know managing the key spaces and the tables, it it eats its own dog food. So really, your key spaces and tables are in a key space and a table. Mm -hmm. it, you know, so so essentially, yeah. you know, when it when it creates that, it has like this unique identifier for it. Um, and if you have again, you know, you, you mentioned it's a it's a common distributed systems type of a problem too. You know, when you have multiple actors really trying to do the same thing, you know, it 
it, it isn't, um, you know, too far out, outside the bounds of reality to expect them to collide every now and then. And that's, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's kind of what's happening. So, so yeah, we know you're not the first one to run into that, but, uh, but you're right. You know, if you can create those ahead of time or, or really just have one actor that's defining the schema. Yeah. That's, I would say that would be the way to go. Yeah, for sure. There's actually an analogous situation for how Quine works um, at, at a different level uh, in the operation of the system there too. So when it, when it's saving data to Cassandra um, uh, in Quine, every node in the graph, it gets backed by an actor and that okay. becomes the single canonical place where all updates and changes are going to be done for that particular node. Um, and what that gives us is the ID for the node becomes an important part of the key in Cassandra for referencing uh, each of the changes that is stored in the, the underlying Cassandra tables. Okay, okay. And, and so we get that, we get the ID from, a, from the actor as kind of the, uh, the first part of the key for what we save in Cassandra. And then the uh, in the actor, it's also maintaining counters to make sure that there's something resembling a timestamp that right. is guaranteed right. to be unique. And so when it comes time to save these updates into Cassandra, we can put those two things together, the ID from a node plus its, uh, its unique timestamp for every update. That's okay. really just a counter incrementing. Sure, that sure. becomes the key that we save in Cassandra so that we can come back later and do a range scan um, over you know, anything that has the right ID and, and all of the updates that happen within, uh, within its respective timestamps. Oh, excellent, excellent. So, so it's similar to the create tables problem just kind of in an abstract sense, uh, in the sense that you might otherwise have lots of races for writing to the same keys in Cassandra, mm -hmm. except that we make them unique by this combination of having an actor that is one place to do some processing to generate um, an ID and a counter that is always unique for everything we go save. Oh, hey, that's a that's a yeah, that's a good way to um, you know kind of data model your way uh, around that problem. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. Uh, any other issues with uh, with getting Cassandra to uh, to work with Quine properly? One of the challenges when running Quine. Uh, is that when you want to performance test it and benchmark it so that you can get uh, the ideal throughput through the system overall. Mm -hmm. And since Quine is a back pressured system, which means that it's going to dynamically control the flow of data to slow down if there's a component of the system that's overloaded. Right, okay, okay. Um, and so that, that component could be lots of different things throughout the system. Um, really anything that's using resources, CPU or disk IO or anything of that sort, you know, might be using all available resources on that machine. And so it might become the bottleneck. And so sometimes the storage layer becomes that bottleneck um, and gotcha. causes the rest of the Quine system to slow down so that it doesn't overwhelm that storage layer. One of, the, one of the things that we've seen when operating um, with, a, with Cassandra on the back end there is that profiling and kind of performance testing uh, a Quine cluster initially when it's set up um, gives you a little bit different of a footprint with respect to throughput and performance um, because later in the life cycle, just as you continue to stream more data through, Cassandra will start going through its compaction phases to uh, to, to take the tables that it's been maintaining and, and organize them more efficiently. Right, right. And, and when that compaction phase hits in, it has an implication for the overall throughput um, of that particular system. So 
as it's streaming through, Quine might be running and say, you know, Cassandra's great. You know, the current bottleneck is, you know, uh, the ingest source, you know, is not fast sure. enough. Sure. Um, but then when we've seen enough data coming through the system that Cassandra's compaction kicks in, um, it, it starts to consume extra resources for the, the processing and uh, doing that compaction phase, which now kind of moves the bottleneck. So it was ingest and now it might become uh, the, the data storage layer. So because Cassandra is doing this extra work. So it kind of changes the dynamic of where in the system is the bottleneck. Right. Quine handles that, you know, in a back pressured fashion. Um, you know, but it means when when operating Quine, there's a, you know, you, you want to try to tune it for performance to get the best throughput possible. You have to you have to account for these two phases where it's initially fast, but then also there's this compaction phase. Sure, sure. Yeah, I know compaction can be uh, can be kind of a tricky thing, and you know, you're right. Sometimes it does get in the way of uh, performance. Um, you know, but just you know, a couple of points. Um, compaction absolutely is something that you do want to happen. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, you know, it, it you know you could have um, you know what, what happens is you have partitions that can get spread across multiple files underneath, and you know the fewer files it has to has to pull a partition out of, you know, the the happier you're you're going to be. Um, so that's so that's really what compaction is trying to do is just to limit the number of files that it that it has to have open. Um, there is a tunable for that. It's um, compaction throughput in megabytes per second. Um, and you know, I've I've seen I've seen some teams like like go to the extremes on this. Like you know, they'll they'll say, hey, well, our system is mainly busy during the day, so we're going to go ahead and and throttle that to one megabyte a second during the day. And then we have like a like a cron job that runs and you know opens it up so it's it's at 256 yeah. megabytes a second you know at night and then it can get it all done and then we don't care and then by morning it's it set back down to one you know but uh, but maybe there's there's like a happy medium in there um, and and again you know like, like you said it it depends too on the um, you know the 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 right throughput that um, you know the, that your current use case is working with as well. But um, uh, you know, maybe there's a happier number in there that uh, that might be might work better with Quine. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that interesting. That that use case is a good example too. That it's like almost almost no matter what you do, the use case and the specifics about what you're trying to do end up having some impact on just the operation of the system and, and what you what you have to do to configure it ideally. So the. Uh, Sadly, the silver bullet solution is still just a, a little bit farther off on the horizon, I think. <laughs> so, so that's a good that's a good segue right there. You mentioned the horizon. Um, what's next for Quine? Well, we just released it uh, to the to the world as an open source project. So mm -hmm. um, we're we're in the process of learning about lots of different use cases that people are already finding and, and putting it toward. Um, and trying to support the community for you know however they want to try to use it, um, our team and the community have been uh, building things that we call recipes. Okay. Um, so they're they're up on the Quine.io website, where a recipe is really just the configuration of Quine for a particular purpose. Right. Um, so to consume Apache logs and you know analyze them in a certain way, or CDN records, or to monitor the Ethereum blockchain, and you know be able to to tag accounts as being suspicious and know when they move money around, like all these different kinds of use cases um, all get embodied in recipes. And so uh, a lot of what we think about is next uh, is really just kind of exploring that space of, um, you know, what, what other recipes are, are interesting and worth kind of uh, building and sharing. 
uh, and helping helping community contributors post those up on the website and share notes and ideas about other applications and other ways to use it. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, you know, seriously, Ryan, I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, coming on the show and taking some time to, to talk with us. Just, you know, I, I really think graph processing is, is a very interesting space. And I, I love hearing about, you know, how, how folks are, are coming up with new ways to, uh, you know, kind of solve that problem. Yeah, it's been it's been such an interesting journey and an interesting space to play. And we're I feel like right now we're sitting on the cusp of being able to unlock the next way to use that kind of graph processing. So where data is not static and it's not just sitting there anymore, that it participates in this dynamic flow. Mm -hmm. uh, and that now we can bring graph processing to that high speed, high throughput stream processing environment. So it is, it is a brave new world we enter from this point on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Ryan, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Aaron. It was a pleasure to be here. All right. Goodbye, everyone. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening to the Apache Cassandra Corner. Apache Cassandra is a registered trademark of the Apache Software Foundation. Thank you and have a great day.